way, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, confess any sins to God the Father in the privacy of your priesthood. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to gather together this evening to study your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation, freedom that continues to be protected by you and a freedom that is provided ultimately by you. Father, we thank you for the president that we have, for the stand that he takes for his support of the military. We thank you for those who are serving, especially those who are overseas in in Iraq and Kuwait. We pray that you would watch over them. We thank you for their commitment, their service, their sacrifice. Father, we continue to pray for their families here at home that you would uh, sustain them, especially those in this congregation during this time of uh, extended separation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study this evening, challenge us with their, their truth and their implications for our own understanding of who and what we are as creatures made in your image. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, although we will not spend a lot of time here this evening. Genesis 2, 7 begins to give us the details of the creation of the human race as it had been summarized back in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we're told that God created man in his image and according to his likeness. And then we see the beginning of that in the, in the second chapter. The first chapter gives us that summary, the overview of uh, everything that took place during the creation week. And then the second chapter comes back and focuses on just exactly what transpired on the sixth day of the creation week. So we get a, uh, a just a general summary in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and then the specific details in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Now we have stopped on 2.7. We've stopped on 2.7, which states that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, when we exegeted this, we saw, thanks Al, we saw that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground is the formation of the physical body. It's the formation of the physical body, and then God breathed into him, and that is the input of the immaterial part of man. So we have a physical body, which is uh, biological life, plus 
the soul life breathed into man. This is the immaterial part. And it's only when they are combined together that we have full human life. And it is not until that point that man becomes a living being. Now, this is the creation of the male. The woman is not created until we get down to about verse 20, so we won't get there for some time. But we're stopping now to take a look at the nature of man. We looked at the origin of the soul. We looked at the, Then we looked at the transmission of the soul. And now we are looking at the subject of the soul itself. What is man? What makes a human being a human being? And last time I emphasized an extremely important point, and that is that the Bible draws a marked distinction between two things. First of all, between God as the creator and everything else as the creation. So this is the creator-creature distinction that holds true for everything. And this is in contrast to human viewpoint thinking, which sees that everything from the smallest microbe all the way up to God is just part of the same chain of being. And there's no difference except in degree. That God is just a uh, just an, another being in the universe, like all other beings, except he can do more and is greater and bigger than everybody else. But the Bible presents the creator-creature distinction that God is categorically different from everything in the creation. Then a second distinction is made, one which we'll begin to develop in a couple of weeks, and that is between man at the, at the creature level, at the creation level, the distinction between man on the one hand and nature on the other hand, that man is distinct from nature, that man is, in fact, created and set over nature to rule nature and to exercise dominion over nature. Now, this kind of thinking, it must be developed and understood from the Scripture if we're going to have a Christian view of the environment, a Christian view of ecology, and a Christian view of nature. Because what happens in human viewpoint, if that distinction is blurred and man is part of nature, then you end up with all your various pantheistic ideas of religion that, that permeate much of, uh, shall we say, natural religions or nature religions. And it is in that framework that you see that man is to move with and in harmony with nature as opposed to ruling nature. Those are radically different ideas. And so as a result of that, if you have people operating on human viewpoint, thinking that man operates in harmony with nature, then you're going to come up with a radically different view of how man is to utilize natural resources. And people who operate on that uh, that frame of reference are the kind of people who think that we ought to get rid of uh, gasoline-powered cars, automobiles, and we ought to go back to horse and buggy. And they can't imagine the kind of pollution we'd had if we were all using uh, horses today. And <clears throat> anyway, we'll get into that in a couple of weeks. This is consistent with pantheism and all nature religions, which is why you end up going back to worship of the 
Mother Gaia, Mother Earth, and all of the things that go with that. But tonight we're focusing on who and what man is, and we started this last time, and we got through, I think, at least a couple of basic observations from the text, which I want to review, and then we will move on. First of all, an observation in the text itself, that man becomes a living soul. This is the Hebrew word nefesh. Now, this is very important to understand something about uh, the words of Scripture. You have two words that are generally understood to be soul. The first is the word nephesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H in the Hebrew, and suke in the Greek, which is the word from which we get our words, our suke or soul. Soul derives from this psychology uh, psychosomatic or words that are developed from that Greek root. But the Greek concept of a soul was much more advanced and much different from the Hebrew word. And in doing Bible study, one of the most important elements is to understand the development of words and the development of concepts so that the understanding of soul or nefesh in the Old Testament, let's say after the flood, so we'll put it about 2400 B.C., was not as refined and precise as it was after you had the giving of revelation in the Old Testament and you had a lot of additional information given, through, especially in the wisdom literature in Psalms and Proverbs. They said a lot about the soul, so you, that adds information to the meaning of that word. So by the time you get to the close of the canon in about 400 B.C., the concept of soul or life, because nefesh is just a generic word often, it means nothing more than life. Or it can stand for the whole person. And it picks up a little more specificity as it goes through time. Then you had the intertestamental period, and Christ came on the cross, and you had the beginning of the church age and the writing of the epistles in the New Testament. Now, epistolary literature in the New Testament is much different from the narrative, primarily narrative literature in the Old Testament. You read in the Old Testament, they're telling, especially in the historical books, they're telling the history of what happened in Israel. You don't get into more specific kind of detailed analysis in other places except maybe in the major prophets and in some of the Psalms. But when you get into the epistles, there's very precise, detailed information. Just sit down sometime and read Psalm 23 and compare that to the first chapter of Ephesians, and you'll see the difference. So by the time you get to the epistles, there is new revelation given using the word suke or soul in the New Testament. Now, since the Bible is a, the consistent revelation of the immutable mind of God down through the ages, we know that when we come to New Testament data, that that helps us to further define what went on back. For example, New Testament concepts of the soul are also true of Old Testament concepts of the soul, but if you're just interpreting 
Genesis or Exodus in light of how they understood it and the frame of reference they had, they would not have understood everything about the word nephesh that you and I understand about the word nephesh. In other words, it's not as precise a terminology when you talk about soul or spirit was the Hebrew word uh, ruach, R-U-A-C-H that that is also a, a general term. And what we have a tendency to do sometimes is go back and make these very precise technical terms everywhere we find them, except if you look in any dictionary, you'll find that each of these terms conveys about seven or eight meanings. In fact, nefesh can mean throat as well as neck. It has various meanings. It can also refer to the individual person as a whole, not just the immaterial part of the person. So you have to be very careful how you analyze these words. Now, we think that that's uh, somewhat unusual, but in every language there are words that may mean two or three different things in some other language. But the native speaker of that language clearly uh, categorizes and classifies those different uses when, when they hear them, just because of context. We can always tell the difference when we hear various homonyms, such as hear or hear. We can tell what each, which word is used by just looking at the context of, what, of the statement that is being made. So we have to understand that. Now, that's important because of where we're going to go today in understanding the basic uh, breakdown of man. Well, our first observation, the first observation we went through last week had to do with man's unique creation, man's unique creation, and I emphasize the fact that the Bible expresses man as being created in the image of God. Every human being is in the image of God, male and female. God created them, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. However, in human viewpoint, the human being is someone who needs to have a self-image. And this is often goes to some sort of utilitarian concept that man has his value, his significant significance, he gains his meaning from what he does as opposed to who he is. And see, the scriptures start with man as the image bearer of God, where even though we're fallen and even though we have that image marred by sin, we are still in the image and likeness of God. It's just distorted and warped and corrupted because of sin and because of our sin nature. But for man, apart from God, they try to find value and meaning and significance on the basis of what we do and what we accomplish and what we produce in life. And that leads to a very utilitarian concept, which then can bleed over into issues related to infanticide or euthanasia, because if someone doesn't seem to be very productive in society, they're at a stage in life where they're too old to do anything anymore except be perhaps just sit and watch television. Uh, maybe they're hooked up to a machine, and that's just barely keeping them alive. People today, the pressure is to euthanize them. But that that is built on a concept that their value in life is based on what they provide for society or what they can produce, as opposed to the view that this is someone who's created in the image of God. And as an image bearer of God and bearer of God's image, 
they have value in and of themselves. This is why when you come to Genesis chapter 9 and the Noahic Covenant, and God is going to uh, uh, delegate authority to man to make judicial decisions, especially in the most extreme judicial decision possible, and that is capital punishment, that the reason for capital punishment in a capital murder crime, uh, capital murder is because the person that has been murdered is created in the image of God, not because of what he provided for society, not because society frowns upon murder, not because capital punishment is deemed a deterrent to murder, not for any of the reasons that are usually set forth for capital punishment. But the rationale that the Bible gives for capital punishment is that an individual who's in the image of God has been treated lightly, and that is an act seen as an act against God himself. And therefore, the person who commits such a crime is no longer worthy of life themselves. And um, you always have people come along, and they raise two objections on that. One is that, well, it's not practiced fairly. Well, I'm sure that omniscient God knew that it would not be practiced fairly. Nevertheless, he still delegated the responsibility, and just because you don't do something correctly doesn't mean you shouldn't do it at all. You just need to uh, reform the practice. And then second, we have the idea, you have some people who try to float the argument, well, capital punishment is nothing more than murder. No, it's not murder, and neither is it revenge. Revenge is not the purpose. It is justice, and it is justice because God is the one who defines what justice is and what murder is and how penalties should be assessed and carried out. It is not for man to judge whether or not this is right or wrong because man does not have the knowledge base from which to make that decision. He is, in effect, calling God incompetent and a liar when he says that capital punishment is not for today. So capital punishment was established because man is in the image and likeness of God. Man is a unique creation. Pointed out that this image, this concept of being in the image of God, flows all the way through Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Man is created in the image of God. That image is then corrupted and distorted because of sin. And then, when in the New Testament, we learn that when we are regenerated in the church age, there is a renewal of that image. Colossians 3.10 says that we have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. There is a reversal of that corruption process as the believer grows and advances. Uh, Romans chapter 8, 28 to 30 states that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We were, man was originally created in that image, and our destiny is to have that image uh, fully restored. But furthermore, I said that that image is not to be restricted to just the immaterial part of man, that there is a merger of the immaterial with the material, and it's the whole package. It's primarily the soul. But we run into two errors in this that we've always run into. One is to make the image physical, and one is to make the image spiritual. And I pointed out that those who make the image spiritual tend to limit 
or even to the point of degrading the importance of the physical body and physical existence. And that played itself out in various forms of dualism and Platonism and Gnosticism in the early church, and it's been that way throughout history. Then on the other hand, there are people like the uh, Mormons who emphasize the physical aspect, and their point is that as God was, we are, and as God is, we will be. In other words, God once had a physical body just like yours and mine, and one day we're going to have another another body. But the scriptures emphasize that it is the human body that God shaped and formed to house the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and eventually had in mind that it would house the uh, temple and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the temple for the indwelling of Jesus Christ. So the body is important. We can't limit it and say, well, that's not part of the package. It is part of the package. And that led to the second observation last week, and that is that it is through our physical body that we rule nature that it is through our physical body that we rule nature. Unlike the uh, incorporeal angels, that is, they are immaterial, they do not have physical bodies, man has a physical body, and he is to, from from that framework, from that vantage point, rule physical nature. He is to exercise dominion over all the creatures. He is part of that physical universe, and it is through his physical nature that he is to rule nature, beginning with that part of the earth that makes up his own flesh. See, he is to rule the earth, but our very body comes from the earth, and that is the starting point where we are to exercise that rulership in the area of self-control and self-mastery. Of course, that was violated at at uh, at the fall. Now, Man is created to rule nature, and thus we see that there is a a connection between body, between the material, and this is all that I'm covering at this point, is that there is a material part of man and an immaterial part. And, and we will see that the immaterial part is made up of soul and spirit, but that's the next topic, and that these are united in one person, And the totality of that person is said to be in the image of God. He represents God in the universe. And we can't emphasize one over the other. They are both important. A couple of passages on that that uh, we covered last time. One would be John 14, 9, where Jesus is having a conversation with Philip. Philip questions uh, the Lord and says, Show us the Father. And Jesus said to him in John 14, 9, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, if you were Philip, who did you see? You saw the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in a physical body. And so Jesus is emphasizing, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because the point is that in the incarnation, everything that God was in terms of being infinite is scrunched down and packaged down into the highest possible expression of deity in a finite form. And that's in the person of Jesus Christ in his uh, humanity and in his human body. In Colossians 2.9, we're told that for in him 
all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. See, it, it's not just the fact that he's God, but he is in a truly human body that's important. You can't distinguish the two. So man rules through nature, through his body, and man's dominion rule was lost at the, at the fall. Man's dominion rule was lost at the fall. But man was to rule the na- rule the world, so that all three part. I mean, so that man in the material and immaterial combination, the one person of the human being, was to rule the earth. Everything was made for that purpose. A medieval theologian by the name of Hugo Saint Victor stated it this way: The spirit was created for God's sake; the body for the spirit's sake, and He's using the term spirit there just as the immaterial part of man. The spirit was created for God's sake, the body for the spirit's sake, and the world for the body's sake, so that the spirit might be subject to God, the body subject to the spirit, and the world subject to the body. So there is a purpose and an organization to why it works this way. Now, man's... Dominion was lost at the fall. Because of the fall, man can never exercise dominion. He can never rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field as God originally intended. And that dominion rule is going to be recovered through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that dominion is ultimately going to be exercised when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. This is seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to turn over there to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, 23. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Now, in the process of the church age, each individual believer is going to be spiritually matured through the exercise of ruling as we learn to rule our flesh, which includes the sin nature and mastery of the sin nature under the power of the Holy Spirit, and then working outward in all the dimensions of life around us. Even Jesus Christ, and he was sinless, had to be matured in this same manner of exercising authority. That's why Hebrews says that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, some people get the idea that he had to learn obedience. That indicates that he might have been disobedient. No, it doesn't. I would say that most of you here have learned that it is wrong to commit murder. You didn't have to commit murder in order to learn that. See, Jesus didn't have to be disobedient or ever disobey anyone to learn obedience any more than you have to learn that murder or some other crime is wrong by uh, having committed that crime. You learn these things in the process of your growth. And in the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity learned to exercise dominion and apply doctrine to every area of life as he was prepared to go to the cross. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see how powerful these the implications from the creation are. 
Look at verse, we'll start with, pick up the context, look at verse 23. Uh, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Verse 23, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's uh, at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Look at the way this is expressed. It's very similar to the expression of man's exercise of dominion in Genesis chapter 1, where man is to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. He is to rule over every dimension of the creation. So it is the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 24, that will abolish all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that would be abolished is death, for he has put all things, he, that is God the Father, has put all things in subjection under his feet. So here we see that it history culminates when a human being, because this isn't talking about Jesus Christ in his deity, it's emphasizing Jesus Christ in his humanity, that as a man, as he's the God-man, but in his humanity, he is going to fulfill that dominion mandate. This is why Jesus is given the title in Scripture, Son of Man, is to emphasize his humanity that Jesus is, literally the term Son of Man, is uh, Ben Adam, meaning the son of Adam. He is the son of Adam, the descendant of Adam, and it emphasizes the fact that he is fully human, and he is the one who lives out the commands given to Adam and fulfills what and fulfills God's plan where Adam failed. So, we see the second part of this, and that is that that man rules rules nature. And one important point from this, just going back, remember we're talking about the importance of the union of material and immaterial, and that is that that the soul is never to be understood or thought of as having some sort of independent existence. Last time I pointed out that this. Some of our ideas about the soul really have their root, historical roots, in Platonism. And for Plato, there was a, a idea known as the pre-existence of the soul. So for Plato, the soul could exist all by itself, and the body, therefore, was not that necessary. It was just something the soul had to live through, sort of a period of migration on the earth before it eventually returned to the world of the ideal. And so this is a reality that is less important or less significant. That's why uh, the physical world and its importance was downplayed in Platonism, later Gnosticism, and in Docetism, and why they eventually came to the idea that that anything associated with matter was evil and anything associated with spirit was good. This was the dualistic thinking in the ancient world. That is one reason why there's such a uh, counter to that in the Johannine epistles where it was important to believe that Jesus had come in the flesh because those that 
uh, and there were those in the culture who, influenced by Platonism, were saying that Jesus could not have come in the flesh because then he would have been evil. And so it was just an appearance. He just appeared to be that way. But we look at Scripture and we realize that the soul must always be united to some sort of body. There's no uh, independent existence of the soul. Luke 16 tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man. When the rich man dies, he goes to uh, torments. And in torments, he is under physical pain, and he cries out to Father Abraham, who he sees on the other side of the, the gulf that's between torments and Abraham's bosom. And he cries out to Abraham. He says, Father Abraham, in Luke 16, 24, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Now notice the, the physical nature there, the terminology. So there is an intermediate body before we get our resurrection body. So man is to is part of has a body that is is physical like nature and he is to rule over nature and that begins with ruling his own body. The third point that we make from our observation in, in Galatians I mean in Genesis two seven is that all human beings are made from Adam's single body. All human beings are made from Adam's single body. When we look at all of the other animals, and for example, we'll take cats. God created a female and a male. And together they produce all the creatures in the cat kind. When God created dogs, whatever the dog kind is, he created a female and a male. And then from those two come all of the dog kind. And you can do this with every other kind, for, for insect kind, for serpent kind, whatever it is. There were two kinds. There was a male and a female created. And then through procreation, they generated that entire kind. And, of course, that eventually broke up into various different subcategories. But when God created the human race, he did not create male and female individually. He started by creating the male, and then the female is taken from the male. The female is taken from the male so that every single human being goes right back to Adam. Adam is our representative head, and he is our physical head. Both are true. Now, we're going to get into some issues related to this later on, but both of these are true. There's been an argu always been an argument in theology between those who held to a federal headship of Adam and what, they, what is called seminal headship of Adam. And it's not one or the other. It's both. Both are true. We are all seminally present in Adam because everyone traces their lineage back to Adam. And we, he is also our federal head or our representative head. So this makes the human race unique among all of God's creatures. And this is why 
and this is in God's wisdom, God can send the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a representative for the race because there is a unification, a genetic unification in the human race that makes it possible. See, that can't happen for angels because each, each angel is created differently. Each angel is created in distinction. So there's no unity among the angels. But there is among the human race. So this means that Adam, I mean, that Jesus Christ can come and die for the whole race. Now we come to the fourth observation. Fourth observation is that man in his immaterial nature reflects his creator. Man in his immaterial nature reflects his creator. It's not, I did not say, do not misunderstand me, I am not saying that God, man in his body reflects the creator, but in his immaterial nature. So we have an immaterial nature and a material nature. Okay, man in, has an immaterial and a material makeup. What I am saying is the immaterial part of man reflects God. The immaterial part of man reflects God, and it's going to be housed in a material body, a material house that has to be the perfect possible expression. Okay, man in his immaterial makeup reflects God, but that immaterial part, the soul and the spirit, are going to be housed in a physical body that is to be the best possible way to express that which is the representative and the reflection of God. Two ideas, an image, representative, and reflect. We are to represent God and reflect his character in ruling the creation. Now, there are some basic issues that have to be covered when we get into this study. There are three that I'm going to address. The first is the, the, uh, what the components are in, the human, in a human being. And this is otherwise known as dichotomy versus trichotomy. The second has to do with the location of emotion, and whether it's in the soul or in the body, whether it's material-based or immaterial-based. And then the third is the nature of the soul itself. So let's start with the first one. The first one is dichotomy or trichotomy. Now, th these are traditional theological terms that have been used for centuries. Now, I'm going, to I'm going to risk confusing everyone here because you've been taught wrong probably the whole time you've been at this, at this church. And I'll show you why in a minute. Here are the two terms, trichotomy and dichotomy. Now, the tri means three and the di means two, and chotomy indicates parts or components. So there's, there was one view in church history that said that man is trichotomous. There, he's composed of three parts. The other view is that man is dichotomous, composed of two parts. And you think, great, I know what those are. No, you don't. In trichotomy, which was the view of the early church, Man is comprised of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Composed of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. 
in dichotomy, man is composed of two parts, the material and the immaterial. Not body and soul. This is traditional theological terminology. You look up in any standard systematic theology and you look up the word dichotomy, it's going to take the view of those that believe that man is comprised of only two components, material and immaterial. In trichotomy, trichotomists argue from a number of passages that we'll look at in just a minute. Look at the view that man is made up of the body, the soul, and the spirit. That the soul has different components to it, and that includes self-consciousness, mentality, volition, and conscience, where the norms and standards are stored in the soul. The spirit, that should be a small lowercase s, the spirit is that immaterial element which makes it possible for the elements of the soul to relate to God and to understand the things of God. And in dichotomy, or excuse me, in trichotomy, we recognize that when Adam sinned, he died spiritually. That means something wasn't active or wasn't present when he sinned that was there before he sinned. Now, trichotomy, I mean dichotomy, trichotomy teaches man is in three parts, body, soul, and spirit, and soul and spirit are distinct even though they, they overlap in places, even though they overlap in places. And now that we don't seem to have our interference anymore, I've got the computer going again, and we'll try to get back up and look at the graphics on the screen. That'll take a minute. Okay. In dichotomy, the dichotomist believes that all the terms that you find in the Scripture, soul, spirit, heart, mind, are all virtually synonymous and interchangeable terms. And that you have many other terms that are used to describe the immaterial part of man, but that you can't go in and make distinctions in the Scripture between these terms because they would argue that there are many places where the terms are used in an overlapping, in an overlapping manner. Okay, just a minute. that these are just these terms soul spirit heart mind are synonymous terms that are used in an overlapping manner now let me go through the argument for trichotomy i think it's the strongest argument and there are ways to handle the objections from those who believe that man is just made of a, of a two parts first corinthians 2:14 this is familiar to most of you so i'm not going to take a tremendous amount of time on the exegesis 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, the two key words that you have to understand from this verse is, what is a natural man, what does that mean, and spiritually down at the end of the verse. 
And what we learn when we look at the Greek is the terminology that is used for natural man is not a term that would normally be translated nature. It's not the word phusis, which is the Greek word for nature, but it is the word psuchikos. We've been talking about suke all night, so this is translated, transliterated psuchikos and has to do with the soul. It means soulish, the soulish man. And the spiritual man is the Greek word pneumatikos, P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-K-O-S, pneumatikos. And so there's a contrast between the psuchikos man and the pneumatikos man. Jude 19 uses this same word, psuchikos. There the translators in the New American Standard translated psuchikos, worldly-minded. However, if you look at the context of Jude 19, there's a contrast between believers and unbelievers. And regarding the unbelievers, the writer says, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded. That is, they're, they're psuchikos, they're natural men, same as in 1 Corinthians 2.14, devoid of the Spirit. And actually that term that is used there is different. Uh, Worldly-minded is the word psuchikos, but the phrase translated devoid of the spirit is the phrase not having spirit. Now, if you look at your English, the S is capitalized, but there's no capital in the original Greek. In fact, they didn't capitalize words. They didn't even put spaces between words. They just ran everything together, and if you grew up reading it, it was not difficult to to uh, decipher the text, and you knew where the word breaks were. It is a decision of the translator whether or not that word should be tra- should have an uppercase or lowercase s. Since the context is believer versus unbeliever, it's not talking simply about devoid of the spirit. It should be understood in contrast to sukikas, not having a lowercase spirit. And the reason that we, I say that is that if you go back, and we've done this recently, so I didn't want to take the time to do it tonight. If you go back and look at 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and following, it's talk, it, it, there's a quote from the Old Testament from Isaiah, what eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man. And Paul goes on to talk about revel, special revelation that is given through the Holy Spirit. So whatever Paul says about soulish men and spiritual men in the context of 1 Corinthians 2 must also be true of Old Testament believers. Now, Old Testament believers were never filled with the Holy Spirit. They weren't indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That is unique for church-age believers. As a church-age believer, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and when you're in fellowship with God, you are filled by means of the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, the believer did not have the Holy Spirit. So My point is that if you're going to take a quote from the Old Testament and and make application related to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whatever you're saying has to be true as well for Old Testament believers. Therefore, this can't be a discussion between the Holy Spirit and not having the Holy Spirit, but must be the human spirit versus not having the human spirit. So the picture that we have in now I'm really having technology problems because 
I have a chart here that's completely gone. This has been a great night, hasn't it? There it is. I don't know why it wouldn't show up before. Okay, three parts of the human being, body, soul, and spirit. God creates man with a human body and then a human soul. The human soul is comprised of self-consciousness, mentality, conscience, and volition. And then there is another immaterial part, the human spirit. They are so interconnected. They're so interconnected that you can speak of one as the whole unity by talking about one in the same way that if you put your hand inside of a glove and hit someone, you can say the glove hit the man. That doesn't mean the hand wasn't present. Or you can say that the hand hit the man. That doesn't mean the glove wasn't present. You can use just a typical form of language. You can use either word to describe the whole, and that's called a synecdoche of the part for the whole. That is the technical uh, term for that as a figure of speech. So what you have in the Old Testament is a presentation of, of man being created with a physical body and an immaterial part, and that immaterial part has components. One component is the human spirit, which allows the self-consciousness to relate to God in terms of God-consciousness, the mentality to think God's thoughts after him, the conscience to appreciate and understand the absolute norms and standards revealed by God, and the volition to choose to follow God in terms of positive volition. But when Adam sinned, that immaterial part of man's nature was lost. It died. It disappeared. So that the self-consciousness, the mentality, the conscience, and the volition could no longer relate to God. They no longer had the capacity to relate to God, so they're left out to figure life on their own apart from divine input. When, and this occurred in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, when someone puts their faith alone in Christ alone, then they are born again, and God the Holy Spirit creates and simultaneously imparts to them that human spirit so that they go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And that new human spirit acquired at regeneration is what enables them to learn the Word of God again, to grow and advance uh, in both the Old and New Testament. However, in the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit, who is the one who teaches us when we are in fellowship with Him. Now, that explains the difference between trichotomy and dichotomy. In dichotomy, they say that man only has two parts, the immaterial and the material, and soul and spirit, and these other terms are used interchangeably. Now, back in the 50s, Pastor Theme, as he is prone to do, decided to try to solve this problem by redefining the terminology. And what he did was he came up with the view that You do have trichotomy and dichotomy, but it's dichotomy when man is an unbeliever, only two parts, a soul and a body, and he he becomes trichotomous, or three parts, when uh, when he's born again. I want you to understand that because every now and then we have people who listen to tapes who are 
um, pastors and going to seminary. And they, they, they hit school, and they read any classic theology, and they're going to get confused when they see the use of terms in a way that's different from what they have heard, from, from a way that they have heard them. So we have to recognize that these terms are used a little bit differently in traditional theology, but the way we're going to use them is consistent with the way Pastor Theme taught them, because that's how most of us have learned them, that man is dichotomous as an unbeliever and trichotomous as a believer. Now, what about some of the problem passages in Scripture? See, some people will say, well, you can't make those kind of hard and fast distinctions. Luke 10:27, we're told, by Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. What they try to say is, see, there's different elements there. They're all uh, treated differently. But no, that's not true. There is a progression there in that verse all your heart has to do with the inner core of your soul all of your soul all your strength and with all your mind it's addressing different elements the problem with most dichotomists is that they fail to realize that when you have different terms such as heart mind uh, conscience that these all relate to components of what we call the soul. Those are components of the soul. The same thing can be said in the Old Testament. It says says, in Ecclesiastes 3.21 we read, Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to earth? And there the word spirit or ruach is used in just a general sense to refer to the immaterial part of man. This is where people get into problems is when you say there's the, the soul and the spirit, and they learn that there are these three parts, they try to go into every passage and make every time you see the word spirit equal the human spirit. It can't do it because they, and remember at the very beginning tonight, I said that in the Old Testament, you have a much more generic use of these terms than you do in the New Testament. The New Testament gives us precision so we can understand this tripartite makeup of man. But in the Old Testament, you have a lot of places where it just uses the word spirit or soul, ruach or nefesh, in an extremely generic term, and it just refers to the immaterial part of the person. It's not making a comment on their uh, soteriological state. Same thing with um, in Luke 1, 46 and 47, when Mary is praising God, she says, my, in, in parallelism, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. This is Hebrew synonymous parallelism, and you don't want to go in and try to make a distinction between the soul and the human spirit in that passage. They're just used in a very generic term. Remember, there are over eight different ways in which these words are used, and they don't always mean the same thing in every single, every single context. Now, how do we know that there are distinctions? Well, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. And here the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that there are times when there is a distinction between the soul and the spirit. They are not synonymous terms. They are not just always these general fluid terms that can be used to replace each other. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. So he sees that there is a distinction there between spirit, soul, and body. The conclusion is that the Bible makes it very clear there man is made up of three parts. The other immaterial components comprise the elements in the soul, the nature of the soul, the makeup of the soul, which is where we'll begin next time in looking at emotion and understanding the role and function of emotion and then going on to understand the nature and makeup of the soul as it reflects the character of God as the image of God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We thank you for the precise nature of your revelation as it describes to us exactly who we are as creatures created in the image, in your image and in your likeness, designed for a purpose to reflect you toward all of creation and to rule creation as your representatives. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.